Welcome to the Complete Leader Podcast, giving leaders the tools and information they need to grow and change their world. Now here's your host, Dale Dixon. Survive, adapt, and thrive. Welcome to the Complete Leader Podcast, everything you need to become a high-performing leader. I'm your host, Dale Dixon, and our guest today has served in the Australian and New Zealand militaries. He's been an outward-bound instructor, led or participated in dozens and dozens of wilderness expeditions around the world. More on that soon. He's worked as a senior manager in and for Fortune 100 companies, climbed the seven summits, the highest peaks on each continent. He has a PhD in human and organizational systems design, the founder of Three Peaks Consulting in more than 20 years as a leadership team and organizational development professional. He has worked in 14 countries. Steve Campkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dale. It is great to have you here. Now, um, and looking through your bio, we always like to get to know folks uh, just a little bit. Uh, you rode a bicycle 550 miles down a river in Alaska in the winter. That's right. Tell me about that. Well, I was actually in the desert at the time in uh, Joshua Tree when I was reading James Michener's book, Alaska. And back around 1900 and 1903, the gold miners went from the Dawson City goldfields in Canada down to the new strikes in Nome, Alaska. And they rode bicycles on the ice at that point in time. Um, when I read the book, I just wondered, has anybody done it since? So uh, that was the genesis of that uh, expedition. And you were the next one to do it. Well, I didn't make it. There's a longer story there. Okay. Um, but it was the longest wilderness bike ride at the time. And um, certainly uh, quite an isolating experience being out there on my own. And you made it 550 miles. I did, yes. In the river. What was, what was the most harrowing experience of those 550 miles, if you could isolate something specific beyond the, the trip in its entirety? Well, one of those uh, harrowing experiences was uh, we had an early spring, and the bears came out early, and I didn't have any weapon with me. And uh, overnight, a grizzly bear left some tracks circumnavigating my tent. And uh, they were big tracks. <laughs> big tracks, hungry bear after a long winter. You got it. Okay. Well, uh, it's good to have you here. I'm going to encourage uh, the listeners, uh, after you listen, you will be able to get into the show notes for the podcast and learn more about Steve. But the, uh, his bio and the information on the website, definitely worth, worth reading. So our topic today, survive, adapt, and thrive. And you've You've got a, this broad leadership, uh, professional and adventure bio. Is there one thing that really stands out as a lesson that you've learned over the years that ties all of these experiences together for you? Well, there's quite a few, Dale, but one that might be of particular value to your listeners is the importance of adaptability and agility. Um, that certainly helped me stay safe and alive over the years in the outdoors. A big part of that is the ability to observe interpret and intervene appropriately in human, natural, or organizational systems. For example, when I was just starting mountaineering, our group of six got caught out in a unpredicted storm. And the visibility went in about 90 minutes from unlimited to less than six feet. The temperature dropped 30 degrees and the winds went from calm to about 65 miles an hour. Um, we got separated from the others and the wind covered up each other's tracks. Uh, the hut that we were trying to reach was guarded on three sides by 150 to 250 foot cliffs and the entrance way or ramp into the hut was about, only about 20 yards wide 
and that ramp was guarded by a series of parallel crevasses. Well, we adapted to the lack of visibility by sending one of us out on belay ahead to mark the bearing with the rope, and then we counted rope lengths to estimate the distance. We were really careful, but we still managed to drop into crevasses twice, and my partner was starting to show some early signs of hypothermia. So even though we thought we were really close to the hut, we decided we needed to find shelter. Unfortunately, there wasn't any on the glacier. So we placed our packs on the ice and scraped what snow we could over the top of them. We packed the snow down, pulled the packs out, burrowed into the snow, and uh, huddled together overnight. Well, the next morning we crawled out, and the sun was shining, and we found ourselves about 70 feet from the hut. And around us, about 20 feet away, were bamboo wands that our climbing partners had placed to try and guide us into the hut. So we adapted, we survived, and the lessons I learned served me well in future climbing ventures. That situation reminds me of uh, something that Indra Nui, the PepsiCo uh, CEO, once said, that we're all in the same business today, the business of adaptability, and failure to adapt can be fatal. I'd say that adaptability is an increasingly important capability in a world that you've discussed elsewhere in this program series, I believe, as being a VUCA world, a world that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm. I also believe that adaptability and agility are needed on at least three levels, the individual level, the team level, and the organizational level. And for each of these three levels, there's a distinction between the skills needed for just coping with change and those needed for building capacities for really thriving continually in this VUCA environment. Uh, and an, an outdoor analogy might be to handle big white water, I can cope by relying on a bigger boat or I can do what top kayakers do and develop my ability to surf the waves in, a na in ways that uh, enable me to change direction rapidly, even in water that would capsize most craft. In the business world, though, we tend to throw more money, more time, people, and increased personal effort at problems. We seem to go for the paddle harder, not smarter approach, which burns people out. Top kayakers, though, they seem to float over the water with minimal effort by reading the currents, staying in balance, and using the force of the water to get them where they want to go. Organizations can improve their ability to adapt by improving their skills at reading the currents, anticipating obstacles, and working with their operating environment rather than going against it. And I guess a final point I'd like to make is that underpinning an organization's ability to adapt, survive, and thrive is the notion of continuous learning. And not just for today's requirements, but learning how to learn and learn fast. I think it was Jack Welsh that said, an organization's ability to learn and translate that learning into action rapidly is the ultimate competitive advantage. So I want to go back to that story you told about your team trying to find the hut and having to adapt through that process and really operating in, in complete blackness. I mean, you were that close within 75 yards and had no idea you were that close. Uh, but I hear you, you talking about uh, really there's a, a systems approach that you had to use. Uh, you as you described how you worked with the ropes and you used the rope links to figure out where you were at. I heard about you've, there's this uh, process. You've got to have capacity. The people had to re remain calm that you were with through that, that process to be sure that they weren't, 
they were keeping their heads about them. And, uh, and then you learn through that process. So when you think about those things and how they apply to the business world, uh, what, what suggestions do you have for how a leader can build skills in those areas? So we're talking systems, capacity, the, in the ability to adapt and continuous learning that you've mentioned. Sure, Dale. Well, as a parallel example, you know, on Everest, uh, I climbed past the bodies of several climbers that had died on the fixed ropes because their bodies were not able to adapt to the altitude and other physical demands at 29,000 feet. Um, but just as important as the physical realm is the failure to adapt mentally and maintain the ability to think flexibly. I think that destination syndrome, sunk cost, and locking onto a goal too tightly and losing situational awareness are all common contributing factors, not just in mountaineering, but also in industrial accidents and failures in business. Um, you know, as another example, on Mount Cook, um, there was three climbers in a party of six in front of us that died after they pushed on into a storm that my partner and I turned back from. Two of them were literally picked up by the wind and blown off the ridge. They felt pressured because they were running out of vacation time, had spent a lot of money getting there, and were extremely determined to conquer the mountain before they returned to their home country. And that was the sunk cost theory. They put the money in, they had the time in, and they were going to see it through when they yeah. should have held back. Yeah, and I've seen companies doggedly pursue projects that just don't seem to make sense except for the sunk cost or someone's ego and reputation being at stake. Um, so one of the th tricks, I think, is leaders need to keep continually scanning the environment in order to maintain situational awareness. They need to be purposely shifting the view from short to long-term range and also from narrow to wide so that they don't get locked into an inappropriate goal or direction. Uh, part of adaptation, again, is reading the signals coming from your environment. One example might be Google's uh, algorithms allow it to detect and respond to the most important signals of their environment. There's almost always a chain of events that builds up before a disaster occurs, whether it's in the outdoors or in an oil rig in the Gulf. Most companies pre-plan their exit strategies into project plans, but too often they, they don't account for the psychological difficulty of taking those exits. So here's some suggestions on how to use systems thinking as a tool to understand organizational environments and to build adaptive, agile thinking. And when I say system thinking, I see that as the ability to identify, interpret, anticipate, and respond to patterns, commonalities, and relationships between people, ideas, or objects. One tip to start a habit of viewing the world as a relational system rather than discrete elements or objects might be when you're driving to work, notice how people, roads, vehicles, and traffic lights interact and work together or don't. What are you seeing, hearing, feeling? So what are the observations and what are the implications? And now what? If you were to redesign that system or intervene in it, what would you do? You can do the same thing when you're gardening or out in nature on a hike. Look at how animals compete, cooperate, or create symbiotic or parasitic relationships. Microsoft, for example, has just made a $26 billion symbiotic bet that linking together their meeting software and LinkedIn 
is going to create additional value for the customers by bringing the right people together more efficiently. Another tip is to practice thinking in terms of analogies, images, or metaphors. You can use stories or open-ended questions as discussion starters in meetings, such as, how is a situation comedy like building a relationship with a stakeholder? Or how is our relationship with ABC company like a sporting event? Another idea might be to look across parts of systems for similar properties or for different organizations that need to solve similar problems. Kodak failed to adapt to the digital uh, camera market. Fujifilm adapted by looking for new applications of their technology and they've diversified. Their Astrolift line of skincare products was based on their discovery that the oxidization prevention processes they use to prevent deterioration of photos could be modified to produce creams that maintain skin, skin quality. Um, another tip, you could also look at bio-inspiration. It's a rapidly expanding field and an example of a business application. Studying sailfish has helped car designers think about drag. Butterfly wings have inspired new approaches to cosmetics design. And Velcro was invented by a Swiss engineer that observed seeds caught in his dog's fur. And in the work I've done, I've used bio-inspiration exercises to help a company come up with communications with stronger hooks by examining choya cacti. And I've also helped a nonprofit organization make better use of scarce resources by observing the techniques that redwood trees use for conservation of water. One last idea I have is to mention bringing in different perspectives for scenario planning. You might invite someone from another function, another industry, or even another age group and ask them how they would view the situation. You could set a norm that no evaluation of ideas occurs before at least three alternatives are generated. Navy SEALs apply, apply this principle to anticipating enemy reactions. Uh, they rank the most likely responses and prioritize time and resources to addressing those possibilities. Mm. I want to go back. Communication and cacti. Can you, can you dive in a little deeper on that one? Sure. I'm just the curiosity's <laughs> off the charts with that. So what was the implication how did, and how did you connect the dots? Sure. So what we did was we sent uh, people out in pairs to take photographs of things they saw in nature that might have a parallel to their business environment. And there's a cactus in Joshua Tree called the teddy bear cactus. And it's called the teddy bear cactus because if you get too close to it, it hugs you. And the spines connect with your skin and break off in your skin. So they really stick into you. And this company was trying to figure out ways that they could get their messages across and really have those messages stick with people. And they were looking for different ways than just the normal techniques that they had. And a teddy bear hug. And a teddy bear hug is what <laughs> did it for them. Okay. Uh, so... You've given us some great examples, uh, and and the stories are just amazing. Uh, and we're looking for the the application to business. What what's the evidence? What have you seen? How have how have you seen these these examples, these ideas, the systems uh, building the capacity? How do you see that help leaders make a difference, both personally and in the companies that they lead? Well, let's look at what's not happening first. If you've read any of the lists of great or excellent companies, you'll notice how much the listed companies change over the years. And Harvard Business Review has also been tracking this trend. And they've noticed that not just are companies falling out of those rankings, they've also noticed that the probability 
that market share leaders are also the profitability leaders has also declined. So why is this? James Heskett, he's the author of Culture Cycle, suggests that it's not just having a strong culture that's important, but whether that culture also supports adaptability. I agree. And again, I think creating and maintaining a culture of adaptability needs to apply on the individual team and organizational levels. When Sterling Moss was dominating Formula One car races back in the 1950s, it was the car and driver that won races. But today, as a, H, uh, as, sorry, as a Harvard Business Review article points out, the sport is as much about processing complex signals and making adaptive decisions as about mechanics and driving processes. Modern cars have hundreds of sensors to feedback information on hundreds of variables, like road and tire conditions, weather, angles, braking and fuel consumption. Procter & Gamble's 3D virtual test stores, uh, Tesco's deep data analysis of loyalty cards, Toyota's Kaizen feedback mechanisms, and Google's algorithms are just a few examples of how organizations can scan the environment for the right signals. A uh, 2015 McKinsey study, for example, found that agility acted as a catalyst in boosting other management practices like direction and innovation. And in fact, they said that uh, there's no certain way to achieve organizational health. But of all the ideas that we've explored in recent years, the link with agility is by far the strongest. Anecdotally, I was a behavioral observer and coach at leadership assessment centers for Disney and Edward Jones over a four-year period. And one of the central things senior leaders asked us to look for was the potential of the leader to see the business as a whole and how the functions interacted and adapted rather than just looking at the needs of a particular function or location. You could also take a look at the research by the Center for Effective Organizations, where they found that a few large organizations in each industry outperformed their peers over extended periods. What distinguished those firms was their ability to anticipate and respond to events, solve problems, and implement change better. And they did this despite significant change in their business environment. Uh, another study, Worley, Williams, and Lawler, they looked at sustained profitability of 234 large companies across 18 industries. And again, the most successful companies were those that had a quiet agility that allowed them to quickly perceive and respond to changes so they could continue to grow. And here's one more. Research done by MIT found that agile companies grow 37% faster and had 30% more profits. Their study suggested that the benefits to companies fall into four main categories of agility. The first one was boundary spanning. That is things like creating new partnerships, new relationships, and effective mergers and acquisitions. The second area of agility was new product agility. The third one was business model agility, things like organizational redesign, or new business processes to meet emerging needs and markets. And the fourth area they identified was business efficiency agility, things like continuous improvement and scalability. So to answer your question, um, from various studies, I'd say leaders who are able to promote adaptability and agility typically see increased innovation, 
increased responsiveness to changes in the uh, wider environment, broader leadership bench strength, less stress in the workplace, more and faster new product development, new ways for adding value for customers, and stronger growth even in the face of turbulence. These are also some of the benefits that I've seen in my years of organizational work where leaders have worked on building capacity for adaptability and agility. Getting to that place where you survive, adapt, and thrive. Steve, thank you so much for your time uh, today, sharing just a... (laughs) just a little bit of your story. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll have you back again for another conversation. It is definitely uh, inspiring. So thank you very much. This is the Complete Leader Podcast, everything you need to become a high-performing leader. Thanks for listening to the Complete Leader Podcast. Find more online, thecompleteleader.org. 